0: Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message.
1: The scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Peter chapter 4. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. It's also on the back of the bulletin this morning. Let us turn our attention to the word of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
0: Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer before we start. Father, this is uh, your word, and uh, we, as your children, have a desire to hear it. Um, You tell us that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. And so we pray uh, this morning that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law, that your spirit would do his role and making known to us everything that you have said. We trust that your word, God, is um, profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Uh, Lord, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It reveals our heart's motivations, our desires. And so we pray for the ministry of the word this morning. And we just pray, Lord, uh, that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. amen. Amen. Harold was born July 19th, 1921. He was a civil engineer and also was an American Christian radio broadcaster, author and evangelist. Beginning in 1958, Harold served as the president of Family Radio, a California-based radio station group that broadcast to more than 150 markets in the United States. Harold also built a multi-million-dollar nonprofit ministry based on his apocalyptic predictions. So, his first prediction would come in 1994, the date September the 6th. And he predicted that Judgment Day would come. That day rolled around, and as we stand here today, and you would guess, nothing happened. His more prominent and known prediction was for more recent, May 21st, 2011. And after no judgment day that day as well, he then doubled down, saying that a spiritual judgment had occurred on that day, but the rapture of the church would be on October 21st of the same year. October 21st rolled around and nothing happened. In March of 2012, Harold recanted and repented. Of trying to do the impossible. But it's interesting to see his followers, that his apocalyptic prophecy ministry was a multi million dollar ministry. One of his followers, Margie Exley, who helped put up apocalyptic themed billboards in Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq, said that the money that she was giving to this organization was to help save as many souls as possible. She said that her and her husband, her mother and her brother planned to stay glued to the to the television that Friday night, May 2011, for news of the earthquake in New Zealand that would spark the cataclysmic events of the end times. Camping Harold Camping recommended this that this week that his followers surround themselves by their loved ones and to not meet publicly. Others said it's really an emotional time and we're nervous and scared about how things will pan out and who will be there and who will go to heaven. Sharon Moss, another lady who is a follower of Camping's ministry, founded a website and business called aftertherapturepetcare.com to provide post-apocalypse animal care. And said that a new wave of customers had paid $10 to sign up in the last few weeks. Or another man, a day, the Daily Mail, reported that a New York City transit employee who spent his entire life savings, $140,000, advertising with Harold Camping's message. What will he do now? And so in the midst of all these prophecies, we see... Um, What the followers of camping did. How they spent their time based on these false prophecies. What their priorities were. What they really wanted to accomplish if they knew the end date of Jesus' coming. What would be your course of action? Now we know that the Bible makes clear that we don't know the time and date. And that we are not to seek to know the time and date, that only the Father knows. But if the end of all time was at hand, what would you find yourself doing? Where would you spend your money? What course of action would you take in your day-to-day routine? And our text this morning answers that very question. We find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter is writing this book to suffering Christians in the first century who are suffering under the reign of Nero. The book is filled with application to suffering Christians. But Peter also throughout the book recognizes that he believed in the imminent return of Jesus. And he gives this local church instructions on how they should conduct themselves in light of the imminent return of Christ. Look at verse 7 and let's begin our text this morning. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, and then he gives commands, the Lord gives commands and so The truth that this early church and that Peter is writing to this early church, the truth that they believed that the return of Christ was imminent had certain binding implications on the way that they lived their life. That's what the therefore is there for. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, this is how you are to conduct yourself. And it is a clear... If you read the New Testament, it's very clear that the New Testament writers did believe in the imminent return of Christ. In James chapter 5, verse 8, James writes, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, writes to the church at Philippi and says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And he said, And from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the early church, the early church writers were truly convinced of the imminent return of Christ. And I don't know that you and I are convinced of this today or at the very least, we don't think of the second coming of Christ as a reality. Or maybe we don't have enough faith that that Christ is going to be true to his word or maybe there's just been so much time between the ascension of Christ and uh, in the life of Christ that we just think, well, we've got at least that much more time until he really and truly comes. But truly this morning, I want to ask, how often do you consider the second coming of Christ? How often do you think about it, ponder on it? How often do you have to remind yourself of that reality? And do you remind yourself of that reality? Or even a better question that we're going to answer this morning, how often do you think about your responsibility in light of that truth? All of the practical instruction that Peter is going to give us this morning comes in light of Jesus's return, in light of. But how do people typically respond to the knowledge of the second coming of Christ. Well, in contemporary evangelical culture, we immediately go to study right when we when we when we realize that Jesus is coming again, we want to put together all the pieces maybe in the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel and we want to kind of form a timeline and be aware of the signs. And most of the time, our mind and our hearts go to figuring out or having a better idea of when Christ will come. Our minds and hearts go to study and not necessarily duty. But this morning, Peter's calling us to action in light of his second coming. It's not that we don't need to be aware of the times in which we are living or ignorant to what the Bible teaches on the second coming of Christ, but the central dominating theme of all of the teaching on the second coming of Christ is to be an encouragement for the believer, to fortify our hope, as well as to motivate us to godly living. In times, books sell really, really well. In times, studies are well attended. In times, movies man, are a hit because it's intriguing in the hearts and minds of people. But what about in times living? How often are we examining what is our responsibility in light of this concrete truth? And that's exactly where Peter goes this morning. And so first, he calls this church, God calls us today, to, be, to stay focused on the mission. To stay focused on the mission. Look at verse 7 in your Bibles. He says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled and sober-minded. What Peter's communicating uh, in these two phrases, self-controlled and sober-minded, is, is the idea of, of vigilance, right? He's contrasting the behavior of unbelievers earlier on in 1 Peter chapter 4, look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's just begin in verse 1. And Peter draws this contrast in the text. Verse 1 says, since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He says, look at verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And so Peter is calling this church to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled. These two phrases communicate the idea of curbing one's passions. It means to be able to reason and to think properly in a same manner. It means to have understanding about practical matters and being able to act sensibly and sober. It calls us to, to behave with self-restraint and moderation, not permitting excess. And so some of your translations may say self-controlled or might say sober-minded or, uh, or exercising self-control, moderate in your behavior. And what, what, what Peter is communicating is that, is that we need to be free from the intoxicating pull of the world. So what does it mean to be sober-minded, to have a saved mind and have right thinking and exercising self-control? I think Peter understood for this early church that there was a a huge tendency and temptation for them to be drawn away to earthly pursuits and desires, to be caught up in, in the suffering and persecution that they were in in Peter's day. And he's calling them to a sober mind, to be to be theologically grounded, uh, to, to exercise self-control. Uh, the same word and the same concept is used of the, the demoniac. We know that Jesus in his ministry in Mark chapter 5 healed a man possessed by a demon. And after Christ had called the demon out of him, it says that he had returned, and the demoniac was exercising self-control he was in his right mind and so Peter is drawing a contrast between the way unbelievers would live and the way Christians should live in light of Jesus's second coming he's saying that there is an imminent end date and we have our clocks set to not yet but there is a time in which your life will be called into account that the second coming of Christ is, is a set reality. And our responsibility in light of that truth is to live sober-minded, self-controlled. It, it echoes what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 when he writes to the church at Colossae saying that if you have been raised with Christ... You are to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He says you are to set your mind on the things that are above. And so communicated in this call is, is, is just a call to stay focused, to stay on the narrow path, to keep fighting against sin, uh, to keep fighting for holiness. Don't haphazardly walk through uh, life in light of Jesus' second coming, or, or even as some would do, right? Paul wrote to the to the church at Thessalonica, condemning some who in light of Jesus' second coming were just kind of couch surfing. They were being idle and busybodies, and that's not the right response either. Peter's calling them to mature Christian behavior, sober-mindedness, self-controlled. And you and I this morning must recognize our own tendency to drift in this area. We, by ourselves and our own strength, don't drift toward vigilance, do we? We drift toward being consumed with temporary worldly pursuits. We we find ourselves needing to be reminded often that Jesus is coming again. Uh, we, we get caught up living as if this world is our home, as if our citizenship does not belong in heaven. And Peter has a word for us this morning to be sober-minded and self-controlled. And, and I don't know about you, but this gathering this morning is, is, a, is a means of God's grace to help me remember this truth. I mean, we just sang about the second coming of Christ in Hallelujah, What a Savior. And so our corporate gatherings help us be sober-minded. They help our self-control. They remind us of the eternal realities that are all around us that we often forget or neglect. Our small groups help us remember and our midweek discipleship gatherings help us do this just to be sober-minded, to remember that our citizenship is not here, that we are, we've been given a mission by the head of the church, right? To continue to live for his glory. The author of Hebrews makes the same connection. In Hebrews chapter 4, I mean Hebrews chapter 10, we, we often quote that verse about not neglecting the gathering together of yourselves, the assembling of yourselves together. But the author of Hebrews says, listen, you are not to neglect to meet together, but he says you are to meet together more, why? He says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. As you see the day drawing near, talking about this same day that Peter is referencing when he says the end of all things is at hand, the author of Hebrews says that you are to meet together in light of the second coming of Christ, all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we do not drift toward vigilance. We need one another. We need reminders in one another's lives, right? That Christ is coming again, that we've been called to live a specific type of set apart life. And apart from that, in isolation, we, we just tend to forget. We relax. We coast. We chill. And we just lose vigilance and alertness to our mission. Have you not have you not noticed this in your own life? That we don't stay ready by ourselves. We don't stay motivated by ourselves. It's why Weight Watchers has a community, right? It's a community to keep it, help you. Press on towards that goal, right, in terms of the life of the church, right? We we need one another to be sober-minded and self-controlled. And then Peter says, look at the text, he says, you are to do that for the sake of your prayers. So our prayer life is affected by whether or not we are sober-minded, whether or not we are vigilant. We are aware and living in light of Jesus' second coming. Uh, he knew that a lack of vigilance and a lack of sober mindedness and self control would affect his prayer life. I mean, think about Peter. Any examples come up glaring in your mind? Peter in the garden, Jesus comes to him. He says, Could, could you not stay awake? And he tells him to be vigilant in his prayer. Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so Peter, I just have in mind Peter writing this to this church. And you know that's in his mind. That's in the back of his mind how he failed the Lord. And he's saying, be sober-minded, be self-controlled, be grounded, be ready, be alert in light of Jesus' second coming for the sake of your prayer life. John MacArthur, it's kind of a lengthy quote, but hang with me here explaining how it affects our prayer life. He says, if we really believe we are in the last days, we should be giving ourselves to prayer. Sound judgment and sober spirit are for the purpose of prayer. Why? Because holiness flows out of direct communion with a holy God. And when that communion is hindered by a cluttered mind and imbalanced mind, That which is most significant in Christian experience is lost. A confused mind, listen, a self-centered mind, a mind knocked out of balance by worldly lust and pursuits, a mind victimized by emotion or passion out of control, a mind that is ignorant of God's truth and indifferent to God's purposes is a mind that cannot know the fullness of holy communion and prayer with God. After all, you bring your mind into that communion, don't you? And so we see the importance of our prayer life corporately together, that we, we be sober-minded. We exercise self-control in light of Jesus' second coming. Christ is coming back, and our prayer life should reflect that. Our most intimate time with Christ is in prayer. And I know that you know, just as I know, uh, that when my mind is somewhere else, when I'm trying to pray, it's just the most fruitless endeavor ever. I, I mean, I'll fall asleep praying. I'll start thinking about what I have to do for the rest of the day. I mean, that's a that's a common struggle for us this side of heaven as we seek to commune with. Even even when we pray in the service, right? I have to fight to stay vigilant. I have to fight to stay sober minded. And so I want to encourage you this morning through the text uh, that we are to discipline ourselves, discipline our minds uh, for the sake of our prayers. So we had a great prayer meeting last month. The first Wednesday of every month will, will mainly be focused on prayer. And we prayed for lost people. We prayed for those who we care about. We openly prayed for, for names. And it was a great time of fellowship. Um, And so I want to encourage you to to be a part of that. But he he says the church should be sober-minded, self-controlled, and the church should be praying in light of Jesus' second return because we know that at the second return of Christ, the mercy of Christ will have run dry. The patience of God will have run out. And for our lost family members and neighbors and coworkers, that will mean no more time to trust in Jesus. Peter says, sober up, the end of all things is at hand. And then he moves on to verse eight. Let's look at verse eight together. He says, you are to be sober-minded, self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And so he says, above all, love one another earnestly. I love how Peter calls these believers to be others minded in light of Jesus' second coming. I know that when pressure is on you, or you're facing persecution or right, the, the imminent return of Christ, sometimes our knee jerk reaction can be just to kind of preserve me. Let me take care of numero uno. Like I, I'm kind of my priority. Let me get my affairs in order. I'm kind of I'm at the top of the list. And Peter right? Calls us to a different way. He says, keep loving one another. He immediately points the object of our affection and our attention and our service to one another, to the body, to the body. He says, above all, and which comes next is of first importance. He says, love, love one another. I'm not going to ask, what is love? Our students laugh at me every time I ask that because I think there's a song out there, maybe, what is love? And uh, they start singing it when I say it because uh, you spend a good bit of time talking about the difference between what is biblical love and what, how does the culture define love? Because that's just a, a common misconception and it just needs a lot of attention, especially in the lives of students. So we talk about that, but we do need as Christians, to have a grounded understanding of what the Bible teaches love is. There's, I mean, if, if love is the expre- supreme expression for the, in the Christian's life, we better have a solid biblical definition that is in line with the Word of God and not with the talking voices in the culture. And so we, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time defining that this morning, but it's a love that is self-sacrificial, it's a love that has the good of others at heart and at interest. It, it seeks to do good and, and provide the greatest good to the individual who is receiving that type of love. It's, it doesn't have, it's not driven by self-interest. What I can get out of this, that it's, it's unconditional. It's the way that God loves us. And so Peter says, listen, you need to love one another. And side note, I'm, I'm just glad that, that, you know, when the New Testament writers call us to assemble as a body, they, they don't just like leave us uh, to wonder how we're to relate to one another within the body. Like they give us these commands to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to pray for one another, to serve one another. So we can, we can be informed as to how our relationships within the body, what they are to look like. And so Peter says, love, not only just gather together, right? He, he gives... Practical commands as to how we are to relate to one another. And he, he not only says love, but he says earnest love. Or maybe your translation says a fervent love. And this Greek word pictures, a listen, a horse whose legs are fully extended while galloping. It was a medical term describing the stretching of a muscle to its limits. And within the, the Grecian athletics, this, you know, the, the, the massive emphasis on, on sports and Olympics, In the Greek world, it described a runner with a stretched muscle moving at maximum output, straining and stretching to the limit in order to win the race. The same word is used in James chapter 5 when he says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The effective is that straining forth, it's that persevering type love. And this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe that type of prayer, that type of service, and then we see here that type of love. This is not an empty expression of sentimentality. But true love, biblical love, is always paired with action for the good of the person. Love your congregation. He says, love one another earnestly. Paul prayed for the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 3.11 that Or 312, that the Lord may make you increase and abound in love for one another. And what a command to love is. I feel like Bo understands love. Like, I mean, not obviously to its fullest degree, but he understands I love you. We need to love one another. So it's a very simple command, but even the most mature Christian at the end of his life still struggles in the practical application of that command to love one another. One another. Peter says in light of the return of Christ you are to love one another earnestly strain forward in your love don't grow weary in showing love and according to Christ love is the defining mark of the Christian and it's how the lost world is going to look at our life and know that we're followers of Jesus he says that in his ministry and it's I think it's so important that, that Jesus says people will look at the way you treat one another within the body, in order to recognize that you are a disciple of his. It would be, so he's saying your love is going to be set apart from the rest of the love that is expressed in the culture and in the world. And Christians' love should do that. The culture's love is superficial and self-centered. And so the church must be careful not to adopt that same type of definition for how we are to treat one another. And I could list a, a number of ways... Um, how we are to love one another, but Peter does that in our text this morning for us. First, we see that this type of love covers a multitude of sins. So what does he mean by that? Well, it doesn't mean that we don't deal with sin within the church. That's clear from Matthew 18 and other passages that sin is to be taken seriously and dealt with and we have to learn to forgive one another. And, but um, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that this type of love sees sin as inconsequential or unimportant. But it, listen, let, let's put some meat on the bones of this definition. What does it mean to to cover a multitude of sins, this type of love, is that it's, it's a type of love that willingly bears offense. It's an earnest love that strives, as he says, eagerly. That It's a love that stands ready to forgive, ready to move past. Spurgeon says that... This type of love covers sin sometimes by not seeing it. For when there is much love, we are blind to many faults, which otherwise we might see. We do not exercise the sharpness of criticism, which malice would be sure to exercise. And Peter in this verse is quoting a proverb. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12 says that hatred stirs up strife but love covers all transgressions. And so it's a a type of love that is not quick to defend itself. It bears offenses. F.F. Bruce on this, I'm I'm quoting a few people here because I, I struggled just trying to think through what does this mean? He says, love covers unworthy things rather than bringing them to the light and magnifying them. This type of love puts up with everything. It is always eager to believe the best. This love doesn't nitpick. This love is truly humble because it bears offense as well. I've recognized this in my own life. When this type of love is lacking and pride is on the throne, I make every single minuscule offense a mountain. I get easily offended. Easily offended are the proud in heart. They, they won't cover any sin, but seeking justice and recompense for every single offense that is against them. This, this type of love that Peter is calling us to, I think as we understand it covers sins that it is not a distant love. It's a love that is in close relationship because distant love never gets close enough to be offended or sinned against. This type, if this type of love covers a multitude of sins, it must be a relationship close enough where those that are involved are close enough to sin against one another. Are you close enough to people in our church in a way that you've opened yourself up to be sinned against? And when sinned against, do you express this type of love that overlooks or with, doesn't make a big deal about minor offenses? Wayne Grudem says this. I, I felt like this was one of the best quotes about it. He said, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, this type of love, many small offenses and even some larger ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. This is the type of love that Paul charges the Corinthian church to exercise in 1 Corinthians 13. It is a love that is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. This type of love is is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. In light of Jesus' return, Peter says you are to love one another, earnestly seek to do good. And he he unpacks even more, you know, how do we love one another? Well, it looks like love that covers a multitude of sins. But then it looks hospitable. Look at verse 9. So he's fleshing out love one another. Be hospitable. Verse 9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So one of the expressions of love in the life of a congregation is hospitality. We know that love is never just in word, but it's tangible, it's in deed. So what does this word mean, hospitable? It literally means to entertain strangers. It's the word for brotherly love, follow, and it's the word for strangers. And so being friendly or loving strangers. There are tons of examples in the Bible of hospitality. Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18. Lot's hospitality in the book of Genesis. Rahab hosting the spies. Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer is converted. And he has the disciples come to his home. His whole household was saved. It says that he set food before them, rejoiced with his entire household. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew chapter 25 when he says, talking about the end times, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer the Lord and say, Lord, when did we do all of those things to you? And he said, as you have done to the least of these, so you have done to me. And so why would Peter command this? Why would he command hospitality? In that time, hospitality was a huge need. I mean, it's a huge need today, and we'll kind of bridge that gap. But not a whole lot of Motel 6s in the first century. A lot more traveling. I mean, it was a lot more just house to house, home to home. I mean, the church is we see in Acts chapter two is meeting in homes. Uh, and so it was, it was a huge need just in the culture to show hospitality. And one of, the, one of the qualifications for a pastor is that he be hospitable. In Hebrews chapter 13, the author of Hebrews says this same thing. He says, don't neglect the hospitality. And so I don't, I don't know if there's a succinct definition for what hospitality is and is not, but I, I heard one man give a definition and I'm, a, I'm gonna give it. And I think it's helpful. It's a spirit of service and practical generosity that shows the love of Christ. It's a spirit of service and practical generosity that shows the love of Christ. And so how is this fleshed out? Uh, you know, it, it can be hosting a meal. It can be hosting a small group. Uh, it can be uh, there are more than right, just a, one or two ways to be hospitable. It's, it's not only actions, but it's also an attitude. An attitude, a disposition of the heart, a generous disposition of the heart because of what God has done for us in the gospel. And one of the questions I sent out this week is why don't we show hospitality? For us to just think through that. Where do we struggle in showing hospitality? And one of the big things I feel like in American culture is just the idol of privacy, the idolatry of privacy, or even the desire to entertain because entertainment is different than hospitality. Entertainment is really about ourselves and what people are gonna think about our place, right, our, our fine polished china, uh, having everything in order. That's more of entertainment. And I would ask you, when's the last time you've had people in your home? We have, I feel like we have a pretty hospitable congregation. And I, I affirm you this morning. And I mean that from the heart. But we need to grow and not grow weary in our hospitality. Um, if we're ever going to reach... I feel like it's one of the, the main ways that we're going to reach a post-Christian culture is, is hospitality in our homes. Uh, I'm, I, re, I don't recommend books, I guess, that often. I should. There are a lot of good books out there on, you know, everything today in the modern era of, uh, I mean, everybody's written about everything. But there's a good book on hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And if I could, I'm just pleading with you to buy that book and read it. I've got a copy this morning if somebody wants my copy to take home and read. And it's a story of of Rosaria Butterfield, who's the author, who's a former lesbian professor at Syracuse who through the hospitality of a pastor and his wife, she became a Christian. And so their regular practice weekly is to have people in their home, not only church members, but lost people. If we're ever going to reach our you know, our neighbors for the gospel. This has to play some part in that. But Peter's writing to Christians and he's saying, you need to be hospitable to one another. And so what is it? What's the draw for us in, in showing hospitality to one another? I'm gonna, this is a quote by Rosaria in her book that struck me and I, I just resonated with. She says, Kent, her husband, and I practice daily hospitality as a way of life. She says, because we must. We remember what it is like to be lonely. We remember the odd contradiction to be told on the Lord's day that you are a part of the family of God, but then to limp along throughout the rest of the long week like an orphan begging for bread. And that is the experience of so many of us this side of heaven, is that we come to church, we assemble as the body, and there, the presence of God is, is here with us. As we gather, we sing praises to him, we receive his word, we're energized, we're built up, we're strengthened, we're edified, and Monday hits. And it's just a struggle limping along all week long. And so I think this is a great ministry in the life of the church that that we need to have one another in our homes, that we need to be reminding one another weekly of the promises of God, that we need to be reading God's word together throughout the week, singing God's songs together, praying to the Lord throughout the week. Because Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, be hospitable. And when the end of all things has come to an end, there will be perfect fellowship. And there will no longer be weeks of loneliness and no more isolated struggles against sin and no more fear of not belonging. But until then, hospitality is a way that the church counteracts the effects of the fall and encourages saints to press on until the end of all things has come. At the heart of the gospel is Jesus welcoming sinners, Wel- welcoming us as sons and daughters welcoming us around his table of fellowship and we as his representatives are to model this truth the opening of our homes the sharing of our goods and most importantly the sharing of our lives because at the end of the day who cares if you burn the pot roast and who cares at times maybe you have to sit on some laundry when you come to my house or or the china's not glossed right the care of souls within the body of christ is far more important than getting FaceTime in Southern living. It's, it's about people. It's about people. It's about the care of souls, our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then Peter goes on to say, hey, do this, but do it without complaint. Goodness, he could have just left it off, be hospitable, and we'd have been all right. But he says, do it without complaint. And how, we know we can sympathize with this and how the Lord knows this so well. That it, being hospitable is often hard and requires work and preparation and, and cooking and, and coffee and groceries. And we leave maybe community group sometimes or having people over and the conversation wasn't as good as we, I wanted it to be. And did you see how much, how much food they ate? I mean, we should have had to bake a second pan. They brought all their kids over and it was such a hassle and they just keep having them. And it, you know, isn't this? I'm hypothetically. I'm not pleading my case, but I'm just saying. Isn't this just for the extroverts or the outgoing families? Never again. God leaves. Got to be hospitable. Alistair Begg says that without, you know, when he says without complaining, it means you don't invite people over to your home without secretly wishing that you didn't have to invite people over to your home. The Lord. Did not complain about bringing us in close or our baggage in his service of us or the giving of himself. Just be thankful that you have food to share, a table to sit around, a couch, a space, a place, groceries to be shared. And let us be joyful in our hospitality, showing hospitality from a pure heart, from the right heart, from the heart. The Lord knows our tendency to grumble. And there will be a day when all of our table fellowship won't require stress and strain and dealing with sin, but today ain't that day. So let us foster a culture of glad hospitality within the body sharing your life and home for the sheer joy of obedience in the service to others. And we do this through in community groups. That's one of the main reasons that we do it. We look in the book of Acts and we see that there's Christians gathered in the home together, sharing a meal, receiving it with glad and generous hearts, opening up God's word, praying together. And I want to encourage you that if you are not in a community group, this is not a sermon to browbeat you, but I want to encourage you. It's almost like trying to encourage Bo to take medicine. I'm like, listen, just just do this and it's going to make you feel better. I'm pleading with you to to consider community groups, being in a group, hosting a group if you can't get out in the evenings. I know that there are legitimate hindrances in the lives of some of our people from being involved, but if you can, I'm, I'm begging you that it is important for your soul to gather with God's people in the context of a home and testimony after testimony of just God using it to build up, to edify, to strengthen our body. Lastly, I'll wrap it up with point four. Use your gifts to serve the body. The last expression of love is service. Peter says, in light of Jesus' second coming, serve one another. He says in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So the last expression in this text of love is service. Service. Pastor David talked about this last week a little bit in Ephesians chapter 4, the gifting of God's people and the entire purpose of that gifting, not being for yourself, not being to uh, to be boastful in whatever gift the Lord is giving you, but all of the gifts given to his people are to be used for his purpose, and that's the building up of the body, using it to serve one another, Paul often uses the body as an illustration of the church, all of its members working together to accomplish a singular purpose. This is God's people using God's gifts for God's purposes. And when you've been given a gift within the body, you're a steward. I mean, you're a steward who will be called into account the gifting that the Lord is giving you, and I continue serving one another with whatever gift the Lord has given you. And then he breaks up the gifts into two specific categories in verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. So if you're, you, have, you have the gift of teaching or speaking or exhortation or mercy, you speak the word of God. It's the word of God that has the, right, the, the component of edification that's gonna build up the body. It's not our opinions or our, or our own wisdom. He says, you exercise the wisdom of God, the word of God for those who speak and teach and exhort. And then the one who serves, you're to do it with the strength that God supplies. In order that, what? That God would get the glory. That God would get the glory. If God is going to get the glory, you must love earnestly with fervency. If God is going to get the glory, you must be hospitable and not just hospitable, but without grumbling with a glad and generous heart. For God loves a cheerful giver. If God is going to get the glory in your gifts, you must speak his words with his wisdom. If God is going to get the glory in your service to the body, you must serve with the strength that he provides. And all throughout this passage, as I studied it, it just, it was so clear about how God is concerned about our hearts, isn't he? He He doesn't just say, host people, He he wants true worship from the heart expressed in the love of others, Uh, being hospitable to others, serving one another with our gifts because that's how the Lord gets glory. And that is the great end of all of creation is that God would get the glory. He says in order that in everything, in your love, in your service, in your praying, in your hospitality, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion Forever and ever, amen. So in light of Jesus' second coming, we are to be committed to one another. We are to be praying together. We are to be loving one another. We are to be serving. These are just ordinary things. In light of some of the examples I gave at the beginning of the sermon of what people would do in light of Jesus' second coming, Luther said that if he knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, he'd plant his apple tree and pay his taxes. That it's just the regular ordinary self-sacrificial workings of the church in light of Jesus' second coming so that the church might be strengthened and edified and built up. And that's all to the praise and glory of God.
1: This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can, as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus his death for you on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions, or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623, or email us at info at